and welcome to this week's episode from A Lancashire Lass. Today I am very excited to be joined by a former Corporal Major. Darren Daniels left the Army in 2014 at the rank of Corporal Major, having served 24 years joining at 16 years old. He's got some absolutely fascinating stories which I can't wait to share with you all. Joining me now is Darren Daniels. Hi Darren, how are you today? Very well, thank you. Good. Um, for listeners at home, I know Darren through his wife, Carol, who's good friends with mum. I've heard so many interesting stories about him that I thought I should have him on my podcast. So Darren, why don't you take me back to the start of your time in the army at 16 years old? Why did you choose to join? Um, okay. Um, I chose, early as I can remember, I always wanted to be a soldier. There was a uh, there was a standing joke within my fa- family that when I was born I came out with helmets and boots, <laughs> so it was something I always wanted to do. And I, I grew up. I mean, I was born in 1974, so I grew up um, listening to uh, war stories from the Second World War of, of veterans and service personnel um, that played a major part in my life, uh, and, and I was fascinated by sort of the not the, not as much the war fighting side of things, but more the the lifestyle mm-hmm. and the camaraderie that you had uh, working with the forces. Yeah. And then what really solidified it for me was the, uh, joining was the, um, the Falklands war in 1982. I was, I was, uh, eight years old. Um, and my dad, uh, ran a pub, um, pig muscle pub on Blackpool road in Preston. Uh-huh. And a lot of Falklands war veterans, uh, were coming back paratroopers and Marines and they all met in the bar. And I just, remember um the sort of the, the way they spoke to each other the way that these are real hard tough men you yeah know, you, you cross over them if you saw them in the street mm-hmm. um but they had so much respect and friendship for each other i thought i wanted a partner so um i left school uh, at 16 i had my regimental number before i actually did my gcse's i was in the careers office at 14 Wow. S- signed the uh, signed the oath of allegiance at fifteen, which was slightly naughty, but the uh, the the career sergeant um, forward dated it to my sixteenth birthday. So uh, I was in the army before I left school, really. So what was in that oath? Like, what did you have to do? Or what so you was had that to swear. Saying? So you you go uh, and, and you swear allegiance to uh, Her Majesty the Queen, uh, mm-hmm. the government, and the generals and officers set above you and you basically it's you sign your basic human rights away in defense of the nation and and, and the interests wow. like everybody uh, has a right to um preserve their own life and preserve their sort of independence when you mm-hmm. sign the armed forces a little known fact is that you actually sign away that right to preserve your own life gosh so um it's quite a big thing you don't really you don't really realize it at the time you're just 16 years old you signed a piece of paper what do you know at 16 yeah yeah and i don't mean to be detrimental to 16 year olds but you know you've only had that sort of home life so far yeah Um, but as you get older and 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 you uh you work working through the army you suddenly realize when you're being sent to places that you could not potentially come back from that actually I signed up for this so stop whinging just get on with it and that's the thing too many people complain about the sort of the the, the sort of the uh, silly things in life and miss out on the bigger pictures in my opinion so I joined the army at 16 Um, it was and I walked and I went to uh, Harrogate um, training camp which is a an apprentice tradesman camp for the Royal Signals because I first um, uh, joined the Royal Signals and I, and I trained in telecommunications and that was uh, radios, satellite communications and Morse code. Uh, uh, Morse code is no longer taught anymore because it's the digital age and that back then it was the analog era. How did you learn Morse code? Sort of, I went to a museum when I was little and I was reading about it and it was just crazy like how, how did you learn that? 
Um, so it, it was. It's about repetition, um, um, memory retention, all that. So you are literally put into a room uh, with headphones on, and you start learning uh, one character at a time, uh, and then two characters and three characters receiving and sending, mm-hmm. and then you're given tapes. Back before when it was CDs, I'm feeling really old right now. <laughs> uh, so it was tape decks, and you went to sleep at night time listening on your headphones Morse code. Wow. Uh, so, and then you just, it was a two year training program. Um, but that was just part of it. There's also learning radios and how to communicate with satellite communications, how to get communications from around the world using various bandwidths, the internal workings of radios. Uh, at a time when we were training to fight the Russians uh, in the year of the Soviet Union. Um, but obviously the Berlin Wall fell and that plunged the world into a sort of a different uh, dynamic and sent us off all in different directions. Mm-hmm. But it was 16 to 18 at Harrogate. Uh, it wasn't the most enjoyable time of my life. Um, it was, I can imagine it. Was it very, were they very strict when, when the training you... Is it, yeah, you, yeah. you see that it's strict sort of on those programs, but mm. I, I can only imagine it's very, very tough going. It, it is. I mean, because I, I, I came from a very, um, I came from a good background. My mum mm. and dad, very supportive. Um, it's a very loving background. And all of a sudden, I'm just turned 16. Uh, in fact, I turned up at the, at the gates and I was, um, I was about five foot one and seven and a half stone. I was tiny. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, I turned up the gates and uh, this, this drill sergeant turned up and he was like, I says, oh, I'm, I'm here. And he goes, okay, so where's your older brother? And I says, no, it's me. I'm here to join the army. I'm, you know, Daniels. And he said, turn around to do the recruiting side, sorry, trading sergeants. and said, here, lads, look what everyone's sending us nowadays. Look at the size of this. <laughs> so it was... Put you uh, right in your place. <laughs> it, it did. So I was given uh, extra rations. Uh, I was um, given the heaviest kit to carry. You know, I was made the machine gunner, which is a heavier piece of weapon than a normal rifle. Uh-huh. Uh, six meals a day. Um, and two years later, I left. Um, I'd grown about eight inches two years later. And, and uh, I, I'd put on a healthy sort of uh, four stone. <laughs> um, so I, I could actually feel myself growing at night time. And are you still, um, did you sort of make friends with people there? Are you still in touch with them? Like, was it quite a strong bond you formed in that time? Yeah, definitely. I mean, 41 uh, joined my intake. Uh, and and there's, there's four, so in, in my squadron, and there was four squadrons. So 41 times four joined my intake. Mm-hmm. Um, and at my intake, in my particular squadron, only 11 of us graduated two years later. So we lost 30 people in training from my squadron. Just dropping out? dropping out uh, or injured or no longer suitable. Thankfully, the army has changed its views nowadays uh-huh. and they, they, they keep people in and rehabilitate them. But back then, yeah. they just basically said, all right, broke your leg, out you go. Right. Um, but I'm friends, I mean, I'm 46 years old. Uh, my God, I'm 46. <laughs> um, <laughs> and my best friend is a guy called Andy Conley. And I met him when I was 16 years old. Yeah. Uh, he was a year ahead of me in training. And the way we met was uh, he walked into my room. So he was, he was more of a senior recruit than what mm-hmm. I was. Uh, and we said something to each other and then spent the entire day fighting um, from about half seven in the morning till well into the afternoon. And we've been best friends ever since. Um, wow. It sounds weird, but... It, and, and the sort of things that you go through, you know, that was, that was probably the extreme of how I made friends with, with, with Andy, but other people it's just that shared bond of going through the same thing realizing that without each other we're not going to get through this Mm. um living and learning to live outside uh uh, you know uh, how to survive outside the simplest things like how to wash and clean yourself outside you know having to dig your hole in the ground so that's your bed for the evening Uh, and just learning how to be soldiers yeah, it's, it, I really enjoyed it, um, that side of things, but the, the change of um, from home life to army life was, was a tough transition. Yeah. So then from 18, you, yeah. where did you go 
What did you go on to do? So I got posted to my first regiment, which is down in Dorset. Um, I joined a unit called 30th Signal Regiment. Uh, and my first operational tour followed quite quickly. I got sent to Bosnia, the Balkans kicked mm -hmm. off. And I got sent to Bosnia at 18 years old, um, which with the United Nations. Um, and that to me was a real baptism of fire. It was, well, the whole, the whole country had imploded. Um, neighbours were uh, attacking neighbours and, and friends that had been friends for generations suddenly turned on each other. And it's back to something that originated over 500 years ago. It was all mm -hmm. to do with what, what sort of religion or whatever you were. Um, but that was ethnic cleansing. Uh, that uh, is comparable to uh, I don't know, the Second World War, I suppose. But that was Gosh. that was quite was quite horrific mm -hmm. in a lot of areas. Um, but yeah, that was that was my my first operational tour, and I actually did a further three tours of Bosnia. So each tour lasts for about six months. Okay. So I did about a year and a half over in in Bosnia. Around places like uh, Gornibakuf, Vitez, Sarajevo, uh, Zetja, um, uh, you know, Srebrenica, them sort of places. And was that just the British Army, or were you with other countries fighting against? Um, so we got to remember that the, the UN mandate at the time wasn't exactly fighting; it was um, to become peacekeepers. So we weren't uh, fighting in the conventional sense of the words. Mm -hmm. It was um, um, defending ourselves as well as monitoring for the UN and also trying to provide safe havens. Mm -hmm. But back to the question, it was, it was a multinational sort of operation. Okay. Um, so there was French, um, American, uh, British, um, German. The Germans provided the field hospitals because at, at that particular time, the Germans still couldn't, um, upon, you know, end of the Second World War agreement, couldn't field a fighting force. They was only allowed to do uh, humanitarian stuff. Right, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, so they were only allowed to provide sort of uh, medical assistance to um, um, troops overseas. That's now changed. Yeah. But back in the early 90s, it was, it was still, you know, the Berlin Wall had just collapsed. It was, so you still had uh, East and West Germany were, were mixing together. Mm -hmm. um, so and it was still part of the World War Two agreement that they couldn't put fighting troops on the ground. Wow. Um, so uh, another sort of smaller nations were there, you know, in, to represent their sort of country. You'd come across uh, a Hungarian patrol of two or three people or whatever, but the largest people out there were the British and the Americans and the French. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of mercenaries. We came across a lot of mercenaries. Um, from all different nations who who have gone over to Bosnia to be, be, become a mercenary for either the Bosnians or the Croatians, and they were just. And what what weird. is that for people who might not know? What? So a mercenary is somebody who doesn't own a, own allegiance to a country. They are paid soldiers. You know, right. you go over and you fight for whoever's ideal or or, or mission for money. Um, okay. But you have you have no sort of. Um, protection under under sort of i think the geneva convention as a mercenary you just a paid soldier right and wow. um, we came across a lot of them in fact i came across three um three british guys um who were mercenaries on, on one side of the fence for bosnians and then we met them on the other side of the fence for the croatians a few months later Gosh. So we were switching sides um and they took a very dim view of them sort of people in fact they actually got killed in the end oh. um but yeah, so, so Bosnia was was um, not a nice place to be at that particular time. Um, a yeah. lot of what we had to do is go to places where there'd already been attacks or ethnic cleansing and clean up the mess oh. or try and report um, mass graves, that sort of thing. But occasionally we just had enough's enough. Um, I remember coming across a, 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 a village that it had all its windows and doors boarded up. Uh, and um, the, the base of the village had been massacred. And there was a family standing on the, uh, on the road. Uh, I was a young soldier, a young private soldier then, and a corporal and 
and two other guys with me as well. So the corporal was in charge of our patrol. And we weren't allowed to um, transport any civilians because it could have been seen as we were helping ethnically cleanse the area. Right. But, we, but this corporal, and I won't mention any names, um, but he knew that if we'd have left that family there, they'd have got killed. Mm-hmm. Wow. So he just said, right, hide them in the back of the Land Rovers, cover them with all our kit, we're going to move them. Mm-hmm. So we moved them down the road and we actually found out where their relatives would be in a couple of villages over and we took them to their new to their relatives. Wow. So we broke the rules, but in some ways that, that well, not a lot of ways, that doesn't bother me. We 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 helped. Yeah, you saved their lives. Yeah. Well, I would say this corporal did. Um I I was just there helping. Yeah. So, um, so was Bosnia sort of the worst or sort of the most tragic place that you served? Yeah, so Bosnia was, it, Bosnia showed me what, how evil people could be, but also how good people could be. Um, when I went on to Iraq later on in other places, yes, they were, they were vicious, but nothing compares to Bosnia really <laughs> it was it was like another holocaust it was horrendous wow. yeah uh, and back then there was no social media no no camera phones in fact i'm a part of a veterans group of uh, of export bosnian people we actually use facebook to communicate through and they actually said the other day if we had social media back in them day what we could actually show people would be yeah. horrendous because i guess like the press or the media wouldn't have been around well they'd have been around but not around to take pictures of those sort of situations or were the pictures coming out of that time yeah there was there was some came out i mean kate Aidy was over there and i've got a picture of her land rover on its side where they crashed and she's on the side of the road um Gosh. but there was some there was, there was some media out there um and they did cover the cover quite in depth a, a lot of the areas yeah but, but not not first hand, not like you with like you said with a camera phone or anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a there was a a, a place, uh, Root Diamond, and anybody who was um, who'd been over and served over there. So all our roads were named after certain things. So you don't call it the A fifty nine or the M six. You call it so like after something. So we had this route called Root Diamond. It was going between Gornibakuf and Vitez, um, and we came across this checkpoint they've been set up did these the, the bosnians and the croats used to just throw up checkpoints just to annoy people i suppose and they put landmines on the road um and man it and then try and show off a little bit or try and get something out of your money or whatever or mm-hmm. and this particular day we just had enough um i just i mean we went into gordon of beforehand and just digressing a little bit, but we went into what into with warrior armored personnel carriers, and these are you know, like you'd call them tanks if you saw them in the street. Mm-hmm. But if you can imagine a normal street in a in a house, in a village or a town, on the left hand side uh, was the Bosnians, and on the right hand side was the Croats, and they're literally fighting across the street and using our vehicle to uh, shield themselves. And you literally have. Um, on one side, Bosnia is throwing grenades over the top of our vehicles to try and hit the Croatians on the other side and vice versa. Gosh. Um, you know, and this, it, so, yeah. And we went to this, this route diamond. Um, mm-hmm. We came across this checkpoint. And I remember that to this day, there's there a boy there, maybe about 13, 14 years old with an RPG rocket launch on his shoulder. <laughs> And I just looked at him and he looked lost in his uniform. And we, we turned up, we came out, about 30 of us heavily armed soldiers and warriors mm. with 30 millimeter rod and cannons and whatever. There was a 13, 14 year old boy along with three or four other men. And he was trying to fit in. You could tell he was trying to be the big man. Like most boys of that age, they, they, they show off. Yeah. And I've been yeah. there. I've been there. <laughs> 13, 14 years old. I thought I could take on the world. Um, little do you know when people are looking at it going, don't be so silly. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
but he he was trying to show off and fit in and but he had this rocket on his shoulders and his finger was nervously on the trigger and we thought it only takes him to jump and that rocket is going somewhere and they had landmines stacked on top of the roads and anyway I had a sergeant with me and uh, I was a radio operator at the time and he the sergeant and and just had enough and he walked up and down the side of Root Diamond there's a sheer drop cliff he just walked up and he just basically kicked the landmines off the side of the road and wow. he dropped down the cliff and exploded down the bottom and he walked up to this this boy grabbed the rocket launcher off his shoulder and slapped him on his face yeah uh, and and this boy came to and, and then through the interpreter he just said just go home yeah and this boy just ran off and then these other men who were trying to be the big I am, but well, you know, these 30 British soldiers stood there looking at him. That these these guys and then just disappeared into the woods. Mm. When but you were was, um, oh, sorry, I was going to say when you were um, there, what mm. what was sort of your uniform you had to wear day to day? What were you carrying on you all the time? Okay. So normal British Army uniform um, at the time it was um, called DPM, Disruptive Pattern Material. Uh, which is not the uniform you see soldiers wearing nowadays. They've changed it in, in, in recent years, but it was like a, a green-brown uh, sort of uniform. Um, we ha all had UN berries or UN helmets, so blue, blue berries, blue helmets. Yeah. Uh, normal British rifles, which is the SA-80, Mark One and Mark II back then. Um, and uh, it, in, in the early 90s, it was the analogue radios, uh, HF, VHF radios. So really had, happy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, the sort of kit we carried was mostly mobile. Um, so we had Land Rovers and Warriors. But if you go forward into what we actually carry in war fighting, which is in the Iraq war I went to later on in 2003, mm -hmm. it was nothing compared to what you carry in actual combat. What's, what's uh, that kind of thing like? What do you carry then? So um, you can carry uh, anything from 40 pound up to 200 pound. Uh, on your back Gosh. Uh, with the amount of equipment you carry so you would never fight hopefully with 200 pounds worth of kit no. um, but you'd usually go into battle with about 40 pound on you that's, that's so all your yeah that's all your food for, for a few days your ammunition grenades water um, any specialist equipment your rifle uh, as well um, any mortar bombs you need to carry for the mortar tubes uh, any uh, uh, ammunition link uh, mm -hmm. for, for the machine gunners um so when uh, when did you so you went to iraq in 2003 mm. um how how long were you there for were you sort of were you on the front line fighting or what was that like? yeah so we got my my unit back then was uh electronic warfare i was still in the signals but i later transferred out the signals into another unit but i was still in the signals then and we were electronic warfare. We got attached to uh, the U.S. Marines, United States Marine Corps, okay. uh, to do um, joint operations with them. And we went over the first wave um, directly behind sort of the uh, uh, the M1 Abrams tanks, uh, Challenger two tanks, and the the, the airstrikes going off. Um, so our, our job was to plot the battlefield for the commanders. Mm -hmm. So it's a reconnaissance and sort of intelligence operation, I suppose. Um, so we would use electronic me measures to um, locate enemy units, uh, listening to their conversations, uh, and then basically hand over the commanders uh, a complete battle map, along with other units, not just us, yeah. uh, of, of where all the enemy forces were so they can plot the attacks. Um, wow. uh, you know, even mobile communications. The Iraqis very quickly... Um, turn from battlefield radios into handheld walkie-talkies and, and whatever mm -hmm. thinking it was more secure but it's not it's actually easier i was there from uh i think it was february i was there and i was there till the end of the war uh, we came on a month after the war i think so i think it's about five months Gosh. Uh, and so and did you sort of could you drive tanks and things like that? I know when you were talking before about tanks, I was like, oh, I must ask if you drove them. <laughs> yeah, well, when I transferred to the Household Cavalry after the signals, um, they're an armoured reconnaissance unit. Okay. So they do have um, not main battle tanks, but they have what I suppose you would call them little mini tanks. Yeah. Uh, CVRTs, they've actually just changed down to Ajax fighting vehicles. But yeah, I commanded armoured vehicles. 
That's very um, cool. <laughs> yeah, it was, you do feel nice inside. You feel a bit, you, you feel a bit invincible inside them. Now, yeah. in, the, in, in the main battle tanks, you pretty much are. But in the, in the ones that we had, you could still get hurt in them. But, right. yeah, it was pretty cool. I liked it. Yeah, I can imagine sort of you at 16 wanting to be in the army and then driving a tank like, yes, <laughs> I've made it. <laughs> <laughs> My life's in Russian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With, the, with when you were in Iraq and Bosnia, did you yeah. ever sort of come close to, to death? Um, quite a hard question to ask. Yeah. I suppose, yeah, I mean, you're never, you're never really far away from that sort of thing, but you kind of brush it off. But there's a couple of incidents. Um, there's quite a few incidents, but um, yeah, landmines, um, sort of um, people taking pot shots at you. And then uh, we came across one guy who uh, was over in Iraq uh, and uh, he... The army very quickly disappeared. The Iraqi army very quickly disappeared when we went across the border. The conscripts, because the vast majority of the, the, the Saddam Hussein's army was conscripts. And they kind of quickly disappeared. But the Republican Guard and the sort of the more regular troops didn't. They did put up a bit of a fight. And then we had irregulars and you know fanatics and whatever. And I remember uh, it was outside a place uh, we're under a bridge actually just taking shelter for the night. We'd actually just uh, bought a goat off a local farmer in and we, we cooked it up for the evening meal because we wow. found it's a bit of fresh, bit of fresh food. <laughs> um, <clears throat> fed up with army rations. Um, bought it for some US dollars. I think it was about five US dollars for one of his goats. You'd think he'd give him like a sack of gold or something. <laughs> um, and this, this guy obviously, one, one particular time, this from out of nowhere, we just heard rifle, uh, rifle fire, and, and and then we heard the the crack thump of bullets and hitting the side of the bridge and or whatever, and and, mm. and and this hitting the sides of the sort of the vehicles and going into the ground, and and I was with the U.S. Marines at the time. I just um, I, I patrolled out from sort of my own unit's area, and I was just having a bit of a, a liaison visit with the the American Marines at the time. And that came quite close. Um, that was one of the incidents because uh, one of the rounds actually hit the side of the bridge were about two foot away from where I was stood. Gosh. Um, um, and, the, and, and, and mines going off were not an uncommon thing because um, that kind of turns into the sort of the preferred weapon of choice, shall we say, from a, a guerrilla army. They mm -hmm. improvise explosive devices on the roads. And... Um, few vehicles got hit and some guys didn't come home um you know i went back to iraq in 2005 and there's a local lad called paul didsbury um he's from blackpool he was 18 and he was on my unit he was killed i was actually uh i actually carried his coffin and when we buried him sorry yeah yeah Great, great lad. Rugby player. Full of life he was. Uh, but he was only 18. You gosh. Uh, I guess it makes you with the um, makes you feel sort of lucky and blessed in a way that you, I guess you're still here because you were very much involved in all these wars. So. Yeah. I mean, that's why, that's why I try. I've got, I got two kids and I try to say to them, you know, don't sweat the, sm the small stuff. Yeah. You know, and that, and I suppose from people who don't understand or and it's all about you know perception of a of a problem, perception of a, a of an issue. I mean, you can wake up in the morning and you uh, you've got a roof over your head and you've got food and you've got clothes. What's it to worry about? You know, biggest thing you worry about, I suppose, is your health. Um. And you just got to manage that as best you can. But, you know, I try to say to my kids, don't sweat the small stuff. But I probably come across a bit callous at times when I go, oh, I've got this major issue. Like Morgan is my son. He's six years old. Um, Who is an absolute legend for the listeners out there. <laughs> Morgan is the best. <laughs> he is. He's a funny little lad. He's like a little mini-me. He's got the fat cheeks to match. So he's all right. <laughs> um, 
and he came down the other day absolutely in floods of tears because he couldn't find a Lego brick. <laughs> and to him, that's the end of the world. That's, that's him not being able to complete his task. He's so frustrated. I'm saying, Morgan, it's, it's, and he doesn't understand. He's only six. But, you know, I've got a daughter who's, uh, who's uh, 16, going through her GCSEs at the moment, and she's so nervous about her exams. And yeah. She, and I, and I, I can get it. It's like she thinks it's the end. She doesn't do well on her exams. It's the end of the world. She, I'm like, plenty honestly, of other routes. Yeah. Exactly. So I'm not callous. I just, when you've seen people, families who are stood on the streets and they have one bag between them all and their house is burning, yeah. they've got nothing. Why are we even worried about certain things? I don't know. No, yeah, that's very true. And especially sort of in these COVID times, mm. a lot of us, even though it's been a really, really tough year and not being able to hug people, not being able to see people go out, etc. The majority mm. of us, and I'm, again, I'm speaking from a fortunate place, we've got a house, we've got family with us, we've, we've got food, we've been able to eat and drink and, you know, go out for exercise. And it's really yeah. made us all realise how much stuff we don't need and how much, like you said, you only need, not little amount of things, but you only need basically people, really, and things like that, just to keep you, and food Absolutely. and health. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, we're all facing the sort of restrictions of lockdown at the moment. But can you imagine a place where you can't even set foot outside your door because you might get shot? Mm. That's what Bosnia was like. That's just, was, and I, yeah. But, I think you know, people need to like, put, put it into perspective, sort of the not being able to go out. People have been saying how sort of, the four-week lockdown we just had was difficult or the two-week quarantine of self-isolation is difficult. And I'm, and I'm like, well, put that into perspective of that me who had to shield for 16 weeks. You know, put that into perspective of what you've just said mm. of someone who can't step out of their house for fear of being shot. It just puts everything in the wider perspective of what really matters. Um, yeah, it, it does. I mean, like Sarajevo, there was a place uh, called Sniper Alley. And that mm -hmm. literally was where all the snipers were in the high-top buildings. And just taking random pot shots at civilians or UN personnel because they fancied it. It was a good laugh or they were the wrong religion or they're from the wrong part of the you know, neck of the woods. Um, mothers being shot because they're trying to get to the shops to get some food. Can't imagine that. You just can't, no. from this country, you just can't imagine that kind. You see it on the no. news, don't you? You see, you see sort of... Um, what was happening in Syria and other places and you mm. see that but we're so accustomed to seeing that kind of thing now it doesn't shock us which is awful but you can't imagine and relate to that as much because mm. we've we live in a sort of free country and, and that. Yeah. Um, well, we've got the power of the remote control if we don't want to see it we just turn the television off yeah very true in denial kind of way have you mm. um as Morgan started asking you to tell him stories and things I bet he thinks that like, he's got the coolest dad <laughs> I try not to influence him because his mother, you know, his mother, she's you know, no Morgan's Carol. apple of her eye. Yeah. And, and she's, I never want him to go into the army. Um, and I'm like, well, he'll find his own way. So I've got to be careful of what I say around him. Yeah. But every remembrance day, he wears my miniature medals on his chest. Oh, uh, oh, that's so I'm, sweet. Yeah. He's, he's, and it calls him daddy's buttons. Oh. Um, and, and, he, and he said at dinner with day, he said, daddy, because when I grow up, I goes, yeah. I goes, I want to be like you. And I thought, right. Because I want to be a soldier. And I was like, and Carol looked at me. I was like, well, let's discuss that later on in life. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so then after Iraq, it's yeah. I'm reading you trained in Arctic warfare. That was before Iraq, that was. Oh, before Iraq, sorry. Yeah. So um, in, in, I think it was 1999, I think, or 1998, I can't remember the exact year, but um, I was part of a unit, um, uh, uh, Ace Mobile Force Land, uh, Ace, uh, standing for Allied Command Europe, mm -hmm. and that was um, training to the, the northern sort of NATO flanks to protect the northern NATO flanks, which is northern Norway in the Arctic Circle and places mm -hmm. like that. Um, and um, my unit got sent to the Arctic to train um, to live, survive, and fight up into the Arctic Circle. And when I was over there, I kind of got the bug for it because it's the most <coughs> peaceful 
place on earth. It really is. I mean, you, there is no ambient noise, if that makes any sense. You can actually yeah. hear ice moving. Gosh, that quiet. It's, it's so... I mean, you could whisper uh, in an area and, and your guys could hear it hundreds of metres away. Wow. Because uh, at night time, noise travels further as well. It's about the ionosphere, the D, E and F layers all combine, and it's all about noise fields and all that. <laughs> so at night time, you could actually hear people coughing from a couple of miles away in the right circumstances. Wow. So I, I asked to um, stay over there and learn to become one of the instructors. Mm -hmm. So I then took a course, a very intense course with the Royal Marines uh, on, on uh, uh, how to be an instructor and teaching people how to live, survive, and then ultimately fight in the Arctic. And I spent three years in, in the Arctic Circle. Wow. So what um, was living there like? Obviously, it'd be cold. Yeah. And I'm guessing... It's a different, like... it's a different type of cold, though. I mean, it's a dry cold. Yeah. I mean, anybody who's ever been skiing up in the Alps or whatever will understand it. Yeah. It's a dry cold. Like this cold, this, this country is like wet cold. So you, yeah. you feel cold because it's moisture in the air and you feel even more freezing or whatever. But when you're in the Arctic and you're working, I mean, I was skiing with just a T-shirt and a smock on in yeah. sub-zero sub temperatures. Wow. Uh, and you were hot. And so in... Let me get this right. In winter, it'd be, it'd be dark, wouldn't it? But then in summer, would you have a lot of daylight? Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. So um, you get the, the summer thaw, and then that's when you come uh, out of the circle for a bit of rest and whatever. Yeah. Because it is, it is labour-intensive. Um, you, you can... Uh, every night, you've got to... Uh, before darkness hits in the circle, you've got to, uh, you've got to build your sort of uh, sleeping area. Um, and it takes a long time because if you get that wrong, you're in a world of pain at night time. So how did life. you build that? What, did, what so was there's, it? So there's two ways that we, we, we did it. Or there's a few ways. There's survival ways and these are sort of the prepared ways, shall we say. So um, in every four-man patrol, we have uh, £200 in our back with all our equipment on. But we're also carrying, uh, dragging a, 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 what calls a pulk, uh, which is like a sledge. And on that is your tent, your, your cookers and all your big, you know, big items, whatever. And there's three people strapped in it. It's two on the front and one person, the man on the back is a brake man. Just let me fly enough. He's not really a brake man. He's a guy who holds a piece of rope and then just tries to stop you falling off the cliffs with skis and stuff. <laughs> um, but at nighttime, you'd, um, if you're using the tent version, you would dig uh, a hole in the ground uh, put throw up perimeter walls of snow which very quickly turns to ice which are like concrete after a while yeah. you put like a dome tent in the center which can take up to eight people mm -hmm. um, and sleeping bags inside there you're leaving your skis and your weapons outside because you can't take anything metal inside the, the dome tent because once it gets hot in there moisture forms you put moisture onto metal you take it outside it will freeze Right. So you've got to leave your weapons outside, your skis outside, and anything metal, otherwise it becomes useless. Yeah. Um, it's quite an unnatural feeling from a soldier leaving his weapon outside yeah, of where he's actually sleeping. That. Yeah. Um, so but I guess there really wouldn't be many people. There won't be many people around you, Not really. really. <laughs> <laughs> Don't think I saw really many locals, to be fair. <laughs> um, and then there's, there's, there's survival ways you can live out there. So digging a snow cave. And that literally is, you put one person, the smallest person, into some waterproof um, clothes. And he digs down and just keeps digging <laughs> down into the ground uh, until he can see no blue snow. So uh, blue snow means you can see the sunlight coming through the snow. And that means it's a very thin wall, which means yeah. it can collapse on you. So he'll just keep digging down, digging down like a little mole <laughs> through the snow until he can see no blue light. And yeah. when he sees no blue light, he starts to dig wider and wider and wider and building basically a little cave underground for eight people to get into. Gosh, that's giving me uh, like claustrophobia just thinking about that because I'm tiny, so I feel I'd definitely be the mole doing that. <laughs> you, you would. Uh, I'd wrap you up in waterproofs and throw you down. Gosh. Um, but then, then you get on the ground and you lay out your roll mat on the floor and you put your, your sleeping bag on the floor. And you would have um, one candle in the center. You always have a flame going at nighttime in the Arctic to make fire. You, always. Whether it's inside a tent or inside a snow cave. And after a while, what happens with the heat of that candle 
it turns the walls of this snow cave to ice. So oh. you're living in an ice cave and it becomes solid like concrete. Yeah. Um, and it's really warm. You be, can be sat on top of your sleeping bag in just your shorts and a t-shirt in a snow cave and you're lovely and warm. Mm. Um, but you have to have somebody outside at all times in case it collapses to dig you out with a shovel. Gosh. And because it's at night time in the Arctic, the most you can have be outside is for 30 minutes before you start to freeze. Oh. <laughs> so what, you, what happens is, say there's four of you in a cave, which is the ideal um, sort of uh, space. Eight, bigger structure, collapses a little bit better, but put four in a, in a cave. You'd have one person sat up in his sleeping bag getting ready to go outside, and that person's also making the flasks with all the hot water and brews and things like that. Two people sleeping and one outside. As that person in the cave goes outside, he wakes the next person up, he then sits up and starts to do all that. The person outside comes in, then tries to dethaw himself to get into his sleeping bag. That takes about half an hour. And then you've got one person who's actually the only person really asleep. So, yeah, um, rotating you all around. Rotating. So that goes on through the night. What kind of temperatures were, was it? Like, you're talking about being, like, getting frozen after 30 minutes outside. How cold would it have been? So, um, for instance, we, we carried to things like, um, from, it'd be minus 5 to minus 30 in a normal day. Um, but if we're working underneath helicopters for our resupply, because of the downdraft, especially from the Chinook helicopters, um, because of the sort of the downforce of the wind hitting you, it'd be about like minus 60 underneath a helicopter. Oh my gosh, which, that's so cold. Which is instant freeze. And that's why when you work underneath a helicopter, every exposed part of your skin has to be covered up um, because it's instant frostbite. Um, but yeah, it's, but when you're skiing, because you've got you know, you either snowshoes or skis, but predominantly skiing, you're really hot because of the amount of sweat. But then, that, then when you stop, the sweat starts to freeze. Oh, so that's a bit uncomfortable. When, it is a bit. Um, that's why I say to people, you know, my wife looks at me because it's freezing outside. Everyone wrap up. And I said, we're going on a really long, sort of arduous walk, set off cold. And they look at me going, are you nuts? I'm going, no, if, you like, if you're doing any sort of physical training, set off cold. Yeah. Go outside with just a t-shirt on because your body will warm you up. And then when you stop, put your warm clothes on to keep you warm. If you go out all toasted up, all you're going to do is sweat really quickly, turn your clothes to mush, and then that'll freeze and you've got no warm clothes to put on. Good tip so, there. Yeah, so always start off cold. Um, in the long term, it'll benefit you. And I, and I must admit, when I'm saying things like that to my family, they look at me and I go, and I've got to wind it in sometimes because realize they've not been in the military they don't talk mm. about they think i'm nuts yeah you know morgan goes out the door looking like the michelin man sometimes because his <laughs> mum's wrapped him up in all but a duvet um and it's you know it's the right thing to do but i suppose it's my sort of mindset yeah so set the scene in terms of if i was there at the arctic circle yeah. where you were what would yeah. i be able to see around me would it just be flat would it all be like ice um Snow. Depends where you are, really. So it, it, Norway's got a lot of uh, fjords, which are absolutely stunning. Yeah, I've yeah. been to Norway. It's incredible. Yeah, it's it, further north you go in Norway, uh, f things freeze, but you can stand on a frozen lake and look at the centre of a fjord, and it's the most picturesque thing you can ever see. Mm -hmm. And then it'll change like that. The blizzards will come in. Uh, and you get what's called a whiteout, which is the most dangerous place to be if you get a whiteout, which pretty much means is if there is a snow blizzard or there's so much snow or just the wind has whipped it up from the ground, you can't actually tell where the ground stops and the sky starts. That's a whiteout. Wow. And that's where you get a lot of accidents, people walking off the edge of cliffs, um, falling into crevasses, getting lost and then freezing to death. Oh, gosh. So the general rule in a whiteout is you stay put, you dig down, you try and shelter as best you can and don't move. And how long um, do they tend to last, those whiteouts? Uh, we got we caught in quite a few whiteouts, but it didn't last long. Not, we're not talking days and days. Like the Antarctic is, is I say, is more sort of um, blizzards on a massive scale. Um, but the Arctic was, uh, it's, it's beautiful but deadly. Yeah. Um, 
you can stand on a flat plane of ice uh, of snow and just see nothing like but dunes of snow for miles mm. um and then you'll just look down one and you'll be on the end of a cliff or, yeah or an, an ice flow goes past mm. you or whatever you like you know and you, you say before i don't see many locals you always did find some a norwegian man woman or family in the middle of nowhere just quite living quite happily and you'd be like you live here all the time yeah, yeah. and because in the summer where they were living it melts and it's beautiful green picture yeah. in fact we used to have to send people out sometimes uh well every year in the summer months to areas where the british army exercised to try and find all lost equipment in the snow so you'd find radios and all bits of equipment that's been, you know, lost because in the snow, which is so easy to do because once, yeah, once it just sinks, and then you know you send people out. Oh, we lost twenty-seven radios this year. You know, in this area, let's go and find them. So snow's yeah. melted. Yeah, yeah. I think um, well, when you were saying about whiteouts, obviously it's not as extreme. But when we go skiing. And when, when you get a blizzard and you can't, and then the fog and sort of the clouds, and then you can't see the slope to the sky and you can't see the definition. And that's a whiteout. So terrifying because I'm always, I'm always worried about losing people, but I'm always worried that I'll just like go off the edge of a cliff um, mm. or like the slope. But also like when, when it melts, if you're sort of end of the ski season and then there's all these little poles and gloves and hats yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, did you say you went to the Antarctic, Antarctica as well, or just the Arctic? I went to both. I was part of the Antarctic oh. survey team. Uh, oh, I did that for, for, for a few months because I came. That's before that, actually, when I did that. I got a bit of a bug for the snow. Um, and it was just in between operational tours. And there's not much going on. And I was getting a bit bored. And, and the, you know, as I said, does anybody want to go to the Antarctic survey team? They usually send British soldiers down there to work alongside people and I went yeah I'll do that and what kind of food do you eat what kind of rations did you have down there because obviously like, you'd need to eat more wouldn't you if you're in the cold yeah well um it, so in the in the arctic and, and places like yeah you've got to eat more I mean we, I think we're eating like 6,000 calories a day Gosh. um and you still lose weight which is great anyone loves food go to the arctic scoff your face <laughs> and you can still lose weight um mm. So that's 6,000 calories, having steaks for breakfast and stuff like that. Oh, ideal. It's lovely. For me, it loves food. And, you know, I'm not doing as much physical exercise now as I used to, which is telling. Um, uh, It was great. But um, the Arctic was all military rations, but the Antarctic was a mixture because we had civilians alongside soldiers. All right. So they got nice food flowing in, so we used to nickel on that. (laughs) Did you Um, ever see... did you ever see any wildlife? I'm thinking, did you see any polar bears or penguins or anything? Yeah, depending on which um, sort of continent I was on. Yeah, I saw penguins, millions of them. Wow. <laughs> a sea of people, you know, in tuxedos. Um, the Arctic is the polar bear sort of place. Um, but I saw lots of uh, sort of reindeer up in the Arctic, absolutely wow. loads. For yeah. Christmas, it's great, especially with the northern lights coming down yeah so nice but yeah the antarctic was was whales seals penguins um, and were they were they quite tame penguin like did they come up to you or were they quite scared when they got close they they don't they don't really fear you it's like um animals will animals will only fear something if they know it's a threat so if (laughs) they've got a history of like lions are a threat on to, to, to sort of the, you know, the antelope, whatever, because they recognize a lion as being a threat. Yeah. Penguins have never really had humans go and kill them in thousands or whatever. So they don't yeah. really see us as a threat. So you could walk amongst them. Oh, wow. Oh, um, cool. Yeah. It, it, it really is. It's like if you introduce a, a predator into a, an environment, I think it was a, 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 a sort of an island many years ago that didn't have any natural predators, and then Brit, the, the people put one on there and it wiped all sort of the animal life out on that island. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah, they were just walking around us and just doing what they usually do, um, which yes. is not a lot. Penguins don't really do a lot; they stand around or swim. Um, Fair enough. But yeah. uh, they're noisy. Yeah. 
Mm. And then, so you went from the cold and then yeah. to the jungle. Yeah, um, I, I went to Belize as part of the British Army in Belize. Um, and uh, they, it's basically where we had an agreement with the Belizean government that we help train their forces and they give us over a training centre so we can help soldiers uh, learn to live, survive and fight in jungle conditions. Mm -hmm. uh, and I went over there for six months. Where's Belize? Uh, South America. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, so the jungle is a very interesting place to live. Um, nothing in the daytime, you'd think there was nothing there, hardly there. You'd see a few animals and insects and creepy crawlers and whatever. But at nighttime, the jungle comes alive. It's the noisiest place on earth. Um, and the floor moves. Oh. That's why you don't sleep on the floor in the jungle, because you're likely to get eaten by something. Um, so um, like my, my parents look at this, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, the bush trucker challenges and all yeah. that sort of thing. And I look at that and my dad's going, oh, and, and he fell into some cockroaches. I'm sat there going, okay, I'll go along with this, but really, <laughs> it's day in the life. Um, and you, you know, you learn to live and survive. And the one thing I didn't like doing, they've got these massive grubs on the trees. They're about two inches long and it's full of protein. And what you have to do in your survive, in jungle survival course is basically eat, eat them. Because mm -hmm. they're on trees and you walk through the jungle, you pick them up, you put them in your mouth, you eat them alive, and it's mm -hmm. this explosion in your mouth, and it's just like protein, but it's minging. Yeah. Um, I feel I that's like definitely that a bush took a trial that would have happened on Amazon. That's, that's, the, that's the correlation, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's just, and, and you're constantly wet through either water or humidity. Oh. Um, and, and I guess then, it'd be humid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like because it depends where you go in the jungle. Because not all the jungle is um, is is um, enclosed. There's quite some open spaces. Okay. Uh, on on the fringes and things like that. But the the canopy, uh, the tree canopy at nighttime uh, and the daytime. Sometimes you can't see through it. Wow. So you can't see daylight. Sometimes you're going to get little slithers of light come through and. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. Uh, and you carry a shotgun there for the snakes. Wow. Um, Big snakes, I guess you saw. Uh, yeah, but the, there was also the scariest snake encounter I came into when I was, when I was in Swaziland. Um, there was, we lived in Swaziland. It was over there, and, uh, part of the uh, tra British Army training team, teaching the Swaziland Defence Force. Mm -hmm. And they put us all up in this village in mud huts. Uh, and there was like... Uh, a really nasty looking snake hanging from my rafters just above my bed. Oh. <laughs> I know. I looked up and I was like, what the hell is that? And one of the local women came in with just a stick, whacked this snake around the back of the head and took it out and cooked it. Oh, that gosh. one was fearless. Wow. Absolutely fearless. And there's me. I had rifles and pistol and I was just, ah, it's a snake. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So then let's skip to... The um, oh, I must say, I think there should be a film made about you. This is really interesting. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, if Steven Spielberg's listening to my podcast, he should sort of get oh, okay. in touch with you. <laughs> Roll your rights. <laughs> um, you then what did you do next? So, you became like so I, tra I transferred to the household cavalry, the lifeguards of the household cavalry. After mm -hmm. that's after I came back from the Gulf War in 2000, I went back to. So Gulf War 2003, then I went back to Iraq in 2005. And then in 2008, I transferred to the lifeguards of the Household Cavalry. Um, and they're an armoured reconnaissance regiment, but they've got a dual role. They're also the sort of uh, the mounted uh, Household uh, Cavalry up in London, Knightsbridge on the horses. Mm -hmm. uh, and they do um, ceremonial um, escorts uh, and, and protection to the royal family, wow. uh, especially the Queen. Um, so I went up there and, and did that. And uh, I went through riding school, which hadn't changed um, since the days of Queen Victoria. Because um, yeah, you'd said you hadn't, you'd never ridden before. No, no, never been. Apart, apart from Blackpool donkeys, I've never been on a horse before. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I, I've never been, you know, I've had 
I suppose I sat on a horse on holiday a couple of times and never really knew what I was doing, mm-hmm. but never ridden a horse before. So I went up there and did the sort of, it was four months long uh, course. Uh, and, and I was 34 and I think I was, I got told at the time I was the oldest person ever to go through a course. Um, and it hadn't changed from Victorian era, uh, the course, because back then the horses were, were the sort of the, the, the battle tanks. Of the, mm-hmm. of the, so you had to ride military style. Yeah. Um, so learning how to use your sword, how to mount a horse with or without saddle, um, jumping mountain was interesting. Yeah. Uh, riding bareback uh, in case you lost all your equipment and everything you see that the ceremonial soldier wear. If you ever look at the sort of the, 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 the horse guards at London, everything you see is designed around warfare. Mm-hmm. Apart from the helmets, they were more of a ceremonial piece. But the long um, thigh length boots, which I've still got, I use as an umbrella stand at the moment, <laughs> um, they were designed to protect your upper thigh from sword slashes. Uh-huh. All the horse tack that you see um, was designed around warfare. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the cross belts we used to wear carried, on the ceremony side carried the ammunition, but also was a, a spare girth in case your girth for the saddle got cut. Uh-huh. Um, your long gauntlets protect your, your arms uh, and, your really, and your leather breeches for just to protect your legs and other things. But yeah. Um, that was, that was very, that was the most regimented thing I've ever done in my life. And it sounds weird because everyone goes, oh, horses, how nice, how cute. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, a, it's such a regimented routine. I've, I've never experienced anything like it or since. You had to be in the stables at six o'clock in the morning. Yep. And I lived in Windsor, so I had to, tra- uh, I had to uh, drive up to an hour to get into Knightsbridge in London. Um, Six o'clock in the morning, cleaning the stables, cleaning, uh, mucking out this, the horses, um, getting them ready. Exercise in London from seven till eight. Mm-hmm. Back into the yard at eight. Start preparing for Queen's lifeguard. Uh, at, 10 th- at 10 o'clock, you'd be on the square to be inspected. 10.30, you go out the gates. 11 o'clock, the first horse's hooves had to arrive on horse guards parade at 11 o'clock. So as the bell went ding on the 11th ding, mm-hmm. the horse's hooves had to hit that square. Gosh. And then it's regimented the guard routine through the day and then you come back the following day and yeah. it just goes on and on and on. And there's only two times the Queen's lifeguard has ever been late. Uh, one was in the Second World War uh-huh. when uh, the Germans bombed London and the guards couldn't get through and they apologised to the King and the King said, no problem, just don't let it happen again. Um, and the second time, unfortunately, was the Hyde Park bombing where the IRA um, attacked the horse guards at the corner of Hyde Park. But there's still a memorial to this day that we have to salute and we should salute every time we go past it to, in respect of them soldiers mm-hmm. and horses were killed by the IRA. So only two times in over 250 years that the, the, the guards ever been late. Wow. And so what was it like working... Uh, not with the royal family, but for the royal family. Did you meet them or have conversations with them? Or yeah, know? so um, it's not like you have a conversation where you sit down and you know after a cup of tea and ask yeah. about your day and what did you see on television or anything like that. But um, yeah, um, when we, when the the royal family do investitures, people are awarded sort of medals like the MB or the OB or whatever. Mm-hmm. Either in Buckingham, you go up to Buckingham Palace. And you provide the internal guard for all the dignitaries coming through. Um, you, you met the Queen a couple of times. Met her in a garden party. She has a Queen's garden party. Had yeah. a couple of conversations with her. Um, but the most memorable time with the, with, with the Queen was um, every uh, year uh, at Christmas time. She um, presents, uh, gives presents to uh, the members of the. Uh, the, the royal household, the, the staff who work yeah. there, their children. And I had a friend who was the head coachman uh, for the Queen, uh, yeah. Jack. Uh, and they lived in the Royal Mews in Buckingham Palace. And we used to go up there and, and visit them in the Buckingham Palace. And we, it's like a little middle village inside Buckingham Palace. Wow. And one year I took my daughter Paige up there and Paige was given a pres- Christmas present by the Queen uh, because... Well- 
it was it was just a lovely little horse, um, a toy horse. Um, so she met the queen and got a present, and I said thank you, whatever. And then we have all have mulled wine, and then she goes off on her busy schedule. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've met Prince Charles, I've met Camilla, Harry was part of my regiment, um, uh, Prince William. Didn't really meet him per se, but he was around. Yeah. Um, uh, Princess Anne, I've met her. She's um, very into a horse, isn't she? So. Oh, yeah, yeah, very horsey lady. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she's the Colonel-in-Chief of the Blues and Royals. I was lifeguards. Uh, our Colonel-in-Chief was the Queen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, they come down the stables and, and have a chat. They, they generally do talk about horses as well. Princess Anne and the Queen. In fact, there was a 2010 Queen's Birthday Parade. Um, one of our uh, horses, Harlick, a horse called Harlick, I was sat on, mm-hmm. on messed around a little bit because we're all at the back of the square. Yeah. Uh, horse, guards, uh, horse Guards Parade. And my horse, Harlick, decided to have a bit of a moment and started to try and come out from the lines. And uh-huh. he managed to come out and then. He spun round once at the front, in front of the entire parade, and I then managed to get him reversing back into, uh, back into the line. Just, you know, calm down, please. Um, <laughs> and the Queen, through the equerry, sent a message through to the regiment. And it got through all these different filters to say, uh, that horse, um, eighth from the left, or whatever it was, front rank, looked a bit distressed. Everything okay? Oh. And I sent a message back saying... Yeah, everything's fine. You know, horses had a bit of a moment. The rider got him back under control. No problem at all. Oh, that's so nice that she was, like, wanting to know how the horse was, though. Um, yeah, not about the rider on top, just the horse. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then what I found really interesting mm. and exciting was that you were part of the procession for Prince William's royal wedding. Correct. And something really exciting <laughs> happened that day. And I was, I, when Carol told me, I Googled it. There's articles all about it. Fascinating. Do you want to just tell everyone what happened then and what you were doing and how this is sort of relationship goals for anyone out there as well? <laughs> well, the short answer is I proposed to my now wife uh, on horseback yeah. at Prince William and Kate's wedding in front of the entire regiment. In full ceremonial uniform. Wow. So how um, how did you how did you go about doing that on that day? <laughs> um, well, I, I planned it. My mum and dad knew. Carol did, obviously didn't have a clue. <laughs> um, uh, and um, she says, still says to this day that she, if she'd have known anything about it, she might have dressed a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> I said, like, you look fine. You look, you look lovely. Um, <laughs> you looked fine. <laughs> <laughs> she looked good actually. There's all That's the press bad. were there and took put pictures. Yeah. Um, so I I was um, I was given the tallest horse in the regiment, which sounds great, but wasn't because he, if anyone knows anything about horses, his legs go straight up and straight down, which means it's a horrible ride. It's like sitting on a jackhammer. Uh, but he was his, his name was uh, Hugo, and he was eighteen two. Um, mm-hmm. Which is a wow. tall horse. Uh, if anyone knows about horse riding. Um, and I got my kit on and I had the, the ring inside my gauntlet of my glove mm-hmm. uh, and she was on the balcony sounds very picturesque <laughs> she's on, on the balcony over, okay. <laughs> on the balcony overlooking um, the parade ground of uh, the barracks in Knightsbridge mm-hmm. um, and all the regiments formed up all 240 horses uh, the mass bands are playing so did they know uh, about it, your regiment? Yeah, the regiment yeah. did, yeah. So the mass bands are playing um, and they're all forming up ready to set off to escort uh, Prince William and Kate. And I basically just trotted over to her uh, and I said, Carol, and she looked at me. First of all, she just dived into a handbag to try and find a camera. So, and I, my dad nudged her, Carol, Darren wants you. I said, <laughs> Carol, and, and, and she said, what? <laughs> And I pulled out my, I pulled out the ring, out the glove, and I asked her to marry me in front of the regiment. Um, I think she was taken aback slightly because she didn't say yes. She said, "Oh, thank you." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, straight to the point. That obviously meant yes in her language. Um, but then the colonel and everybody came over and shook my hand and whatever. And then, oh. Good Morning Britain wanted to interview me, and we 
appeared appeared even in the Bangkok Post. I think we appeared in. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was, on, it was on the news, live news. It was, um, you know, when people. I suppose it was a gap filler in the communications bit when Prince William and Kate doing stuff. Oh, and, and a royal guard is just promote pr- proposed to his fiance uh, girlfriend. Yeah. But yeah. Um, was, did they find out? Did any members of the royal family get wind of it and like congratulate you or anything? Um, I believe they did. Um, like I say, Harry's part of the regiment. And I know Prince William um, uh, uh, sort of knew about it. Um, and congratulations did come from the regiment. What sources they came from, I don't know. But uh, yeah, they would have known about it. It's all over the news. So then when you, when like you got married, were you in your uniform or were you just in a normal suit? Uh, uniform. I was in full ceremony uniform. Oh, that's so cool. Oh, that's mm. just like, that's such a fairy tale. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then you left the army in 2014 at the rank Correct, of Corporal yeah. Major. Um, yeah. You got quite a lot of medals. Mm. Were they sort of for all the times you'd served in different places? Yeah, so you get tour medals and and things like that so um some of the tours you don't pick up anything any awards for which is fine um uh, but some of the medals you get for just being on tours uh, you get commendations as well and things like that so yeah yeah i think i've got about 11 maybe 12 i don't know i've lost i can't remember wow wow well thanks very much for joining me that was so interesting i could just like listen to all these stories all day um and yeah thanks for everything you did for the army and for the nation we all appreciate it (laughs) (laughs) it was a good club (laughs) (laughs) yeah right thank you very much okay my pleasure Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. To keep up to date with all things from a Lancashire Lass, follow on Facebook and Instagram at from a Lancashire Lass.